fountain in the morning after dawn Underneath were all these pennies fallen from the hands of children They were there and then were gone And I wonder what became of them What became of them Sunlight over me no matter what I do Apples in the summer are cold and sweet Every day a passing complete I'm not one to ever pray for mercy or to wish on pennies in the fountain or the shrine but that day you know I left my money and I thought of you only all that copper glowing fine and I wonder What became of you? Sunlight over me no matter what I do Apples in the summer are cold and sweet Every day a passing complete Apples in the summer are cold and sweet
You're listening to Ink Studs on CITR 101.9 FM. Uh, this week's show is a continuation of a show I did a couple weeks ago where I had three comics critics come on and talk about their favorite books of the year. Um, and this is kind of the flip side where comics critics have their particular view in comics. This week I'm joined by three cartoonists uh, to talk about their favorite books of the year, or not favorite books, but books that we are going to discuss. Um, they all have different opinions, thankfully, so that will add for some discussion. Uh, first up, I've got Dustin Harbin. Um, 
his series is uh, Darbin, as well as the... What do you call your diary comics? Just diary comics? Uh, it's just called diary comics. There we go. From uh, Koyama Press, as well as you have a children's book coming out from Koyama this year. What's it That's called? That's right. That's called um, The Playground War. There we go. And it is a children. It is a book about children waging war. But it's fun. But it's fun. It's a fun. It's a fun war, Robin. I'll take that. Uh, oh, okay. Slowly. Um, it sounds like. <laughs> sounds like you take it in your own sweet time. Yeah, you Americans with your war. Uh, I kid. I love. Uh, I'm also joined by Aaron Costain, um, who has a series of mini comics called Entropy. I forgot to double check and write things down beforehand <laughs> it's entropy right that's right that's, that's right. right um which you can find online at aaron's website which is it's aaroncostain.com uh a-a-r-o-n-c-o-s-t-a-i-n and uh you can also um uh, you, you can order the mini comics as well or uh, find them in the, the finer comic book shops around uh this country and in america but not at lucky's wait, in vancouver wait. Are we not in America right now? <laughs> you are. Oh, man, this is amazing. The internet is amazing. Uh, I should also mention Dustin's website is dharbin or darbin. Oh, yeah, if you feel com. like mentioning that. If we want to. that in, that's fine. That's fine. Uh, and last but not least, Mr. John Martz. Um, John has a whole slew of comics. Why don't you rail them off for folks? Oh, well, um... <clears throat> Uh, I sort of have a, a sort of an ongoing series called Machine Gum, which is sort of a grab bag of anything I do that doesn't isn't a longer narrative. Uh, and I, I have a comic book called uh, Heaven All Day, which was uh, distributed by Adhouse uh, and was funded by Zurich Grant. And um, yeah, there's a few other things on my website. So the kind of the point of this is to get some viewpoint from the fellows. Um, I will. So up front, I probably should have gotten some women involved. I did ask some women cartoonists. Um, they all declined, um, so I just <laughs> stuck with you guys. <laughs> Maybe they were smart. So you got the three most famous cartoonists uh, possible, yeah. me, Aaron, and John. Uh, most famous in Canada. Yeah. I am including you in that part, Dustin. Um, that's, that's where my big market is. Yeah, you're big in Canada. So... We're going to go through a list of books, um, see what everyone thought, discuss them, good, bad, why they're interesting, why they maybe uh, drive with people creatively. Um, the first book I'm going to jump into uh, is one book that I really, really enjoyed and um, would love to read more by him is uh, Pinocchio by Winschluss. Does anyone know how to pronounce his name right? I think that's right, Winschluss. Yeah, it sounds about right. Uh, this was put out by Last Gasp, a uh, reprint of a French book, um, and it is beautiful, amazing, uh, huge volume of an array of different cartooning styles with a modern, odd telling of Pinocchio. What did you guys think of Pinocchio? Uh, well, I, I, I loved it. Um, I, I haven't read it recently. I have the the French version, which I guess is a couple years old, so it's been a while since I read it, um, and I haven't read the English version. I mean, it's mostly wordless, except for the Jiminy Cricket segments, mm -hmm. I think. Um, so I, yeah, I mean, I think it's great as far as wordless comics go. It's um, it's just brilliantly done. 
not sort of like not a panel wasted, very economic uh, storytelling that's hilarious and it's beautifully drawn. Yeah, there's something to be said for a book that's, uh, I mean, what is this, like 200 pages of pantomime comics and with these um, these one page or two page, uh, I think Jiminy Cockroach, uh, Jimmy Cockroach yeah. uh, sort of black and white scratchy, um, uh, the drawings that are, that are in such opposition to the, uh, the lush, um, colorful, uh, the, like the, the pantomime sections of the book. And it's hard to believe that this is the same guy that, uh, that, that co-directed the Persepolis movie. What? I mean, that was such a, a, a polished <coughs> film, right? And uh, wait, wait, wait! Did you say the Persepolis movie was appalling? <laughs> polished. Oh, pot! I wasn't joking. I really thought that you said it was such an appalling film. I was like, <laughs> no. I don't understand what's happening here at all. I thought oh, it was no, no, polished. Appalling! It was offensive. <laughs> it, was a, it was a great movie. Well, I liked it. All right, go on. I'm uh, sorry. I, I really did mishear that. No, fair enough. Um, and uh, <coughs> it's just in such. I mean, I, I understand they were working with uh, somebody else's art when they were when um, Marjan Satrapi and he were were directing the film. Uh, but this just it doesn't look anything like that. And it was just such a surprise to to read it. And I, I really like this particular kind of nasty, grubby noir uh, retelling of uh, Pinocchio. It's interesting to hear the that he worked in Persepolis because it's a really sensitive, um, heartfelt movie, and this is just so violent and brutal and filthy. <laughs> it's nasty. Yeah, um, explain what what is the big because I have not read this yet, um, although I've heard a ton of great things about it. But what is the big um, difference between it and the kind of standard? Um, is that a Hans? That's not a Hans Christian Andersen story, is it? Pinocchio? Who? Where is that original? No, it's from? Uh, it's Italian. It's Carlo Collodi, and oh, um, that's right. it's the original story is actually pretty grim itself. Uh, I mean, you know, Pinocchio gets robbed and hanged by the neck, and it, it's a pretty nasty little story. But this one, I, I guess, it just sort of takes that. Uh, the opposition between the original story and the the Disney version, and kind of exploits that difference and just runs with it. Um, I mean, this is about uh, Pinocchio that's actually built as a, a war machine, who um, ends up having sex with Geppetto's wife and torching her with his flamethrower nose um, <laughs> while they're oh, it's. And, and that just sort of sets the stage for the entire the entire thing, um, and it riffs on other uh, Disney <laughs> cartoons as well, like uh, Snow, Snow White. White. Yeah, exactly. Um, well, the Snow but, White stuff is just that's brutal. It's nasty. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, to really like show people just how brutal the book is, like by the third page, someone shot themselves in the head. <laughs> and I think they'd. Uh, Spoiler also... alert! It's Pinocchio. <laughs> very postmodern yeah it just ends right there and it's 200 pages of uh you know his trip through uh dante's seven circles um i'm also really uh, intrigued by the the way so many of these pages look um like they're from a vintage comic book mm -hmm. 
they have that sort of old old printing look. You can see the dot pattern, but it's not like I, you often see people try to replicate that just sort of in Photoshop, and it just looks obviously fake. And this looks really authentic, as if as if it was printed and then reproduced. Well, I think it's yeah. also the the colors that he's using, because a lot of time you'll find that where folks are doing that, and they're still using modern Photoshop colors for the art, and they'll be done on this certain style of page. But I mean, the art he's using is like this really kind of warm, faded. Is it watercolor? Look to it. It looks like watercolor, and and whatever it is that he does here, the the art ends up looking somewhat like. Um, at least the majority of it looks a, has a bit of that Little Nemo and Slumberland quality to it. Yeah, I mean, you know, I you're going to find out that he does it all digitally at one point. <laughs> like he's doing it all with the iPhone app or something. Yeah. <laughs> I found that Michael LaForge works mostly digitally. It blew my face off. I was like, what? Well, maybe let's jump into... Uh... Use that as a segue opportunity for a comic that Dustin's read, uh, Michael DeForge's uh, Lose Number Three, <laughs> uh, one of many fantastic books that he put out last year, including Open Country. Um, I think Michael was he now twenty four? Something like that. It's uh, it's it's just, it's good. It's so good. Um, he's really able to synthesize this sad reality of this single dad. Um, who's living this pathetic life and uh, just hone in on it and without it being really contrived or um, difficult well, to sludge through. I think what's yeah. amazing about it is, is also that it's um, some it's, it's this uh, domestic um, this amazing domestic story that is set in a post-apocalyptic landscape that and it, it doesn't really call attention to itself. <laughs> Other than no, the Mike, fact that that's the setting. Yeah, Michael's really good at at, um, at sort of taking a sort of banal storylines, uh, just sort of relationship stories, and and setting them, sort of pairing them with weird science fiction uh, elements that sort of uh, they contrast each other. Does do that. It makes for a His great. stuff really great is combo. like I I never thought about that, but that's you're super right. The it's like half quotidian, and then half insane, grotesque. Uh, you know, like Spotting Deer was just, um, I mean, it was gross. Like, I, I read it, and I loved it. I thought it was brilliant, but it was I was queasy half the time reading it. But the the actual um, subject matter was so, or just the delivery of it was so banal and quiet and clean. It's like a really, as someone that doesn't get into a lot of the stuff that I think influences Michael, as far as, like, really out there stuff, um, like his comics are kind of a gateway into that for me. Like they're, um, I don't know. I love them. I, that there might not be a more um, amazing uh, person working in comics right now for me than him. He really. Yeah, it's, it's 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 pretty exciting. Like what what he's doing, and and you know his. Um, I, I guess this ant comic that he's working on right now, which there's a a couple pages of in the back of Lose Three. Um, it's it's that same uh, same sort of quality. It's these these ants don't really look like ants, but they're they could if you uh, if you stretched your mind a little bit. And they're just talking about like you said, Dustin. This uh, the quotidian things. It's this day to day 
uh, they're just shooting the shit. Um, yeah. And, and it's, but it's horrifying and terrible. He's a master of horror comics as well. In, in, in addition to um, this, uh, the dialogue and the art and, and all that. I mean, some of this stuff is it's creepy and scary. It's One of the things that fires me up about um, his stuff, uh, pretty much without exception, even there's occasionally there'll be a story that I don't, um, not that necessarily I don't like as much, but that I don't maybe get as much. Like it's operating on a level that I'm just not, I don't have the internal vocabulary to, to kind of decipher. But the, you can always tell it is, is very similar to um, Chester Brown comics where you can tell um, that he's writing the comics like they're, it's not like I wrote the story and I decided to draw it or it's a combination of words and pictures it's like a very seamless um, you know synthesis of those two ideas it's hard to even imagine breaking um, those apart not so much words and pictures just like the way he's conceived his comics are very, it's a very clear uh voice which I'm not sure a whole lot of people have um, that are doing uh, work like he does that have that level of control over what they're they're saying and how they're saying and it's really interesting <clears throat> say control and also insight into his characters I mean that's one of the amazing yeah for things. such a young dude good yeah. god um, I highly recommend folks checking out it to be the best what four dollars you've spent yeah, even if the only thing that was in the book was that three three page improv night story at the very beginning, it's still <laughs> top of my list. I just yeah. that by the time I reached the end of that third page, I my mind was blown. Was like, I didn't know how he how he made such a perfect little three page um, thing. It's, oh, it's just great. It's it's funny. Like it, we're kind of seeing a, a lot of folks wanting to kind of recapture this um, idea of like the '90s one man anthology. And Michael really is the only guy who's who kind of has really gotten it through and through. And I think like there's you can definitely see the linkages between somewhere Eight Ball stopped and where mm -hmm. Michael DeForge begins, and it's quite amazing. I'll be happy to make that comparison. Um, maybe another uh, Canadian goodie is uh, Matt Forsythe's uh, comics class. Who? <laughs> 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 waka waka waka. Well, uh, you may know him from another book called Ojingogo from a bigger Canadian publisher. <coughs> um, but we're going to talk about the Okayama book, uh, Comics Class. I loved it. I thought it was charming, delightful, and just enough of uh, self hatred. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, and like I, I, I love all of Matt's comics, but if you, you know, you, you read his Ojingago and and uh, the, the sequel that's coming out, and they're they're wordless and they're they're beautiful, but uh, it's not until he actually uses words that you sort of remember how funny he really is. He's hilarious, and it's, it's a it's a funny book. Agreed, and I I think what else I I liked about this was the fact that it's a, a looser. Uh, breezier art style. His Ojingo Go and uh, Jinchalo art is it's it's labored. I mean, not in a bad way. It's just um, he works on it a lot more. Whereas this, you can tell that he was just having fun and he was drawing it quickly and and, and spontaneously. And I, I think that the um, 
that that fun just comes through. Does anyone yeah, want to give a little uh, summarization of the story for listeners? Um, I can. He uh, was teaching a class in was it, I'm I'm guessing it was in comics to kids, mm-hmm. um, and as he was doing it, he was making these comics and posting them here and there and on Twitter and so forth, which I was genuinely sad when that class was over um, because (laughs) those were hilarious as they were coming out. Plus, they're at any one of those really quick, um, rough-looking strips uh, or better than anything I've ever done that I've spent weeks on. You know what I mean? It was like, oh, God, damn it. This is perfect. (laughs) Yeah, that's the the frustrating thing about this book, yeah. Yeah, so it looks so good, and it's you could tell he didn't spend a whole lot of time on. It, and that's what makes it look good, which is of course. The well, I know he was uh, inspired by uh, Jillian Tamaki's webcomic, the uh, Super Mutant Magic Academy, which has oh, a yeah, similar that... sort of similar sort of dashed off digital feel, um, which I think only adds to the humor, sort of the the, the simplicity and the and the, the the quickness of the art makes it funnier. Yeah, it makes it less. Uh... Uh, precious. I think yeah, exactly when you get an improv show or something, you're a lot more prone to laugh at certain things than you would be in a scripted like Saturday Night Live um, kind of thing, where it's like, wow, these are these are this is what the pros can do, um, and so you accept things that you might not otherwise. Maybe I, I don't know. I think that, that I, also with that preciousness idea, the fact that it was such a ridiculous book. Um, or just a ridiculous take on an experience where I see so many things where someone does this genuine comic about teaching the kids and it's about these kids and their magical connection and part of me just gets really frustrated with it because basically you're doing the kid's story and inserting yourself in there and his is the complete opposite of that where it's just all about his narrative and the kids have to suffer through it I like yeah he sort he of writes himself as a real shitty too Okay, I got both of you at once. John, you go ahead. Well, I was just saying that he, he sort of uh, writes himself as a, as a bit of a jerk. Yeah. So D- like he doesn't, doesn't care about the kids, and uh, it's, yeah, it's great. Dustin? Oh, no, 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 whatever John wants to say. <laughs> Let John talk. Well, it's it's Canadian politeness. We come first. Sorry about that, bud. Oh. Sorry. Um, and that was another Koyama Press. <clears throat> um, it's really exciting to see. Uh nice small books like this they're easy to get into um i'm gonna i want to talk a little bit about mom uh which finished off last year i think what was the last volume 22 from those fine folks of fanographics how many of you got the chance to read that book all of you yes yes um now one of you actually specifically said mom in regards to the end of mom um was that you john or was that aaron I don't really remember. I think it was Dustin. (laughs) I think it was me. Back to me. Why? Yes, I did say that. Yeah, I think that is the most, maybe the most interesting thing about um, maybe talking about that that issue is that it is the end of this series. Because as with any any of me that it ended. Why? Sorry. Go ahead, John. Uh, No, go ahead. Well, I was going to say that it it surprised me that it ended, uh, not so much that it wasn't maybe a huge sales success, which was, that was never a surprise in our market, but the it maintained such a high level of quality. Like, I really was genuinely enjoying a lot of the last <coughs> issues um, as much or more as I did the first few, although all the ones with Gabrielle Bell in them were especially amazing. 
um, or um, when I had David B. And you know, the, some of the earlier ones are pretty, pretty special. But um, it was a really high. A lot of the anthologies that would come and go would go because they just kind of lost focus, and you could see a lot of sub, you know, stories that were of subpar getting put in because maybe a deadline was there or something. And that had a really high level quality right to the end, which um, I, I was generally surprised that it, that it finished when it did, especially with serials still uncompleted. Um, yeah, you, you know, I was getting. I, I read the first 12 or 13 issues and you know what I, I, I for me it was a good introduction to a lot of folks at, in the early days and I appreciated that they paired up some famous European cartoonists typically with um, a, a longer piece in, in every book but eventually I just kinda got I got sick of it um, I think it was the see I didn't find it it was it was always um, I didn't find that the quality was always there. Uh, I, I felt like it was like any anthology. It was it was kind of uneven at times, and um, and a lot of the people sort of came and went. Uh, that you'd get you get into a particular cartoonist, and they would be in it for a few issues, and and then they would leave. Um, and eventually, I guess for me, enough of them. Had, the, the folks that I was interested in had had left, like Jonathan Bennett or Gabriel Bell, and oh god, Jonathan uh, Bennett, yeah, uh, and and when, once that sort of wrapped up, then um, I just I just gave it up. But then reading this last issue, I was really impressed. It sort of reminded me why I started reading it in the first place. That that. Um, even if there's some of the stuff I don't necessarily like, there's enough of it in there that is um, uh, to my taste that, that I'll enjoy it. And this was like a double length issue, so. Yeah, yeah I think we're, we're probably all that, we're probably all similar in, in, in that as comics readers, we collect a lot of books and that, that uh, any of these that were eventually sort of serialized into a longer, longer form standalone book, we'd probably end up uh, getting anyway. And so of, of like, I, I would probably, in every issue of Mo, maybe skip over about a third of the book, the things that I didn't necessarily uh, gravitate immediately towards. So it's collecting Mo and, and keeping up with it sort of became a, sort of an expensive hobby because anything I was really interested in, I imagine would eventually be sort of compiled into something later on. And uh, so yeah, it just it just yeah. sort of stopped. Like like Aaron, I just stopped. Uh, I stopped about ten issues in. Like the Tim Henson. You know, book. I I definitely agree with what you guys are saying. Like. And I don't mean to say when I say that I feel like it maintained a really high quality level that there weren't always. In fact, some of the early books had some of my least favorite stories in it. Um, and right up to the end, there were, I'm like John, probably about a third, maybe even a half of a lot of issues I just didn't read because it was not interesting. But um, one of the things I liked about it is it had a, it, it probably had a clear curatorial voice when it was Eric and Jordan doing it at the beginning and I think maybe it became um, maybe less super tightly focused but um, well I think like it also the ones in the middle like when Laura Park started being in there and there, there were there were almost always truly um, standout stories in the last 10 or so that were like wow this is someone most likely Eric Reynolds going out and and soliciting work from people he wanted to see work from, which 
one was one of the things that was really exciting about that um, anthology. It was less a um, I want my friends to get work printed or you know what I mean, like a kind of a buddy anthology, and more of a um, here's the thing where I have a I'm in a position to um, convince someone to create new work that might be amazing. Like Laura Park would never have made that strip about the mice in the wall. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, she might have eventually, but she's an illustrator and she has bills to pay and she does work. Like, the mom gave her a reason to do a certain kind of strip that she might not have otherwise. And that that kind of thing really fired me up about um, um, there, Although there was a lot of stuff in there that I wasn't crazy about, but I really always enjoyed the conception of the whole project. Yeah, I think it's one of the anthologies that'll go down as an all-time great, like... Um weirdo or raw or zap or something it's it's, um uh, you know it's it's it has been pretty consistently there's uh, there's been at least one outstanding story and everything uh and you know i I just want to say that as the paul hornschmeyer stuff that's been in this the uh, life with mr dangerous it it really suffered for being in uh, serialized uh, anthology. It, 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 getting this little dribs and drabs of it mm-hmm. really unsatisfying to me. Anyway. Yeah, that wasn't a very episodic. Uh, no, and then you read the book. Story that broke up very well. Yeah, exactly. Um, and, and the book was was great. Um, and I appreciated in the last issue getting an interview of Paul by the main character. Uh, sort of as a bonus, here's like you've you've all bought the book and now you can um, you can read this sort of bonus story, which did stand on its own. It was um, kind of nice to see. Yeah, Not all I, of the uh, stories managed to wrap up. I mean, I, I guess that's one thing that's a little irritating. You know, some some of these stories just sort of trickled off into nothing, and who knows what's going to happen with them. Yeah, as someone who who um, hasn't kept up with Mom, I definitely the. the the stories I liked the most were sort of the standalone ones, like the uh, Malachi Ward uh, sort of science fiction one. It was really great. And I think um, a lot of these folks, um, hopefully, people are checking out their mini comics and whatnot because, like guys like Malachi Ward and Joseph Lambert, that are also in the, in this book, have amazing um, work that they've created outside of Mom. And Mom gives you like a little rough idea of what they're like, but it really doesn't touch on like uh, Joe's was particularly good sorry what were you saying nope just forget nope. it no, <laughs> only the internet knows what I said <laughs> <laughs> sorry I uh, Joe's story I thought was actually better I, I think it's like one of the best stories he's he's uh, written so far but I, yeah like I'm so used to seeing him he posts so much of his um, sketchbook pages on Flickr so I'm really quite used to seeing his, his beautiful sketchbook pages, but um, to see him sort of take the process that he uses for his sketchbook pages and, and use that to craft sort of a little narrative, uh, yeah, that, I, it's beautiful. Yeah, yeah, that guy's the best. Um, the best. Uh, he's another um, like preposterously young to be so. Um, you know, it's so talented. Didn't he just turn twenty eight? I think he just yeah, turned twenty seven. No, yesterday he was twenty eight. Twenty eight. 
Happy birthday, Joseph. Um, why don't we talk about his book? Uh, I will bite you. From uh, I, I think that Acres. most of us have the, uh, you know, we've we've been seeing that shows for years now, and I, and oh, I think gee. most of us have seen uh, most of this work before in uh, pamphlet comics. Kind of nice to have it all in one spot. Mm -hmm. That presentation, that book was really um, that was um, I, not to belittle other Secret Acres books because all their books look great, but that was a, a book that was really impressive in how it was realized as a, a small, reasonably priced but very nice um, little book. Yeah, you know, I was looking for it earlier today, sort of trying to get all the books together for this, and and I sort of had it in my mind that it was a thicker book, so I couldn't find it on my shelf because I was sort of sort of subconsciously looking for a fat book. And then I finally saw it and I was sort of surprised. I sort of forgot that it, it is such a sort of a, a small book. It's a, yeah, it's a nice little thing. It, it really, um, the design comment is really good because it really shows Secret Acres, just what kind of this other thing, because a lot of the work is black and white. Um, some of it's a little crazier than others. But this book really kind of steps up the production game and shows this, I don't know, this depthness of, of what can be produced. Did it's you know design that book? Huh? Did, was that a design? Does anyone know? I don't have it in front of me. Did Joe design it or was it like a, he I'm designed sure. it with Barry and Leon or? I'm pretty sure he designed it. Yeah. It, it would be surprising. Yeah, designed by Lambert. So yeah, that, those all those CCS guys have extraordinary um, print chops. They all are amazing at like resolution and all kind. Like I've learned more just listening to them talk at conventions about print production than I've ever have from any book or tutorial or anything. They're amazing. And I think beyond the design aesthetic, which is gorgeous, is they're great comics. Um, this book collects a whole series of different mini comics. Uh, that he's been putting out for the last, I guess, three, four years. Um, Some getting uh, a lot of acclaim, like uh, The Turtle Keeps It Steady that was in Best American Comics, I think it was, a couple of years ago. Uh, yeah. And that, I think it was a, was that a student student project? Probably. Yeah. yeah, I think it was, and then he, he, he definitely had a mini that he sold. When he, I first got into him, that <laughs> sure was his new it, mini. And then, yeah, it was in that uh, anthology as well. Yeah, that one my wife bought when we first saw him. must have been three or four years ago in Montreal. And um, he had a stack of those. And my wife bought probably a dozen of that book. She loved <laughs> it so much. She just, she just like, bought everything. And she just, like, hands them out to people because she thinks that everyone should read it. And she's notoriously picky, I will I will say that. So I think that says something for for Turtle to keep it steady. It's a fabulous little story, and and the, the graphic qualities of his graphic representation of sound in it, I think, is pretty amazing. Oh, yeah. It's got. I mean, the whole book. He has this amazing um, formalistic storytelling techniques that really show, just like DeForge, just this. Um, Dustin, you'd really said it really well earlier just how he's making comics like he's not a writer he's not an illustrator he's really a great cartoonist in this work um, 
and I really love that, especially the uh, the first story, where the was it the one where he takes the bite out of the sun or the moon? Uh, yeah, kind of... that's probably uh, half the stories in there. There's a lot of of uh, <laughs> a lot of things being or biting in that book. <laughs> what do you think his problem is with biting? Why is he so obsessed with it? Or do we want to answer that question? A lot of a lot of fighting siblings too. It's true, yeah. There's a lot of fighting siblings. There's a lot of eating. A lot of things happen in stomachs. They. It seems like a lot of. Um, they're kind of like uh, bedtime stories slash morality tales for telling your children how to do things right or something. Um, yeah, there's a very Aesop kind of Aesopian Aesopitude. Fabulistic. Yeah, very, very fabulistic. Um, why don't we jump into uh, a Canadian comic? I guess we've been talking about a bunch of Canadians, but maybe that's my own uh, personal preference. Um, Kate Beaton's collection, Hark a Vagrant from uh, Drawn and Quarterly. Um, I'm sorry, what was the name again? Hark a Vagrant. No, the man's name? What was the man that did it? <laughs> what was his name? Keith Beaton. Oh, got it. Okay. okay. I'll keep my eye out for it. Yeah. Um, a collection of web comics from Kate Beaton's very, very, very popular uh, Hark a Vagrant uh, comics of humorous stories of various little bits of uh, history. Um, it's nice to see it in this format. I don't think the uh, her previous book, uh, the design on it, treated it quite as nicely as this one. It's a very pretty book. Yeah, that's, that's the big difference. Um... I think a couple of you guys selected this book. Uh, it was kind of an inevitable um, thing, right? Was there a bigger book? Was there a bigger success story of the whole year in terms of sales or, or critical success or or people losing their minds over it? Uh, I don't think I've, ever, I've never heard a single bad review of this book, and I think for good reason. It's hilarious, and it's something that I would not be upset giving to my parents or to someone that really loves comics. Um, I think anyone can appreciate it. Is it a good gateway drug comic? <laughs> Might be. It's good. It's different from a lot of comics in that it really is one of those things that is its, its own uh, creature and its own stylistically it's his own it's not a web comic it's not a exactly a print comic it's not newspaper it's you know what i mean it's very they're very individual it, it's it's one of the really nice things that come out of web comics is someone can make something that's exactly what they want to make without having to jump you know what i mean like like who would have bought that initially like a, a newspaper syndicate or something it's a really uh interesting way for someone to get to be like maybe the most famous cartoonist right now like who's more famous than Kate Beaton seriously like in North America comics uh, there must be some mainstream cartoonist um, that maybe I mean like a great selling issue of X-Men is like 100,000 I feel like 150,000 people hit Kate's site every day when she updates 
I mean, it's also it's easy for us to say she's super famous because we're sort of entrenched in the comics world too. Oh yeah, that's true. I mean, I was just in a bookstore the other day and I overheard someone uh, wondering why there wasn't enough Dennis the Menace in the, in the kids section. So you know, there's right, right. certainly people who who don't know Kate Beaton's work, and I think that's uh, uh, the wonderful thing about this book is that it has been so successful. Yeah, I mean, I had a class once and someone was this is four years ago and someone was making Kate Beaton references in that class at university so it really shows I mean even at that time you know she really was getting out there and folks were really latching onto it and I think it's that that smartness and that really attracts folks like it's not dumbing down to any audience yeah I, I kind of feel like I'm doing a disservice by being like Kate's so famous and the book sold so well because it really is because it's so good and she's so amazing at communicating um, somewhat complex ideas sometimes some of her punchlines have a few levels to them and in a style that's very uh, again loose and evocative rather than uh, tight and prissy like um, a lot of people or my, my own style like control like she she's very good at getting a point across with a certain elegance that uh, um, I guess seems to come naturally for her, but I know that she works pretty hard on that, so um, I don't want to do her disservice. Yeah, uh, like they, 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 they look sort of tossed off like we were talking about with Matt's book, but that sort of lack of preciousness is what, uh, what uh, makes them so special. Yeah. It's the, uh, her keen, cunning, cartooning nuances that she's able to do. It's... Uh... It's fine. Very time. alliterative, Batman. I'm, I've been trying on this. Adam West is coming to town soon. So Holy cunning comics, him. Batman. Cunning cartoonist. Oh, sorry. Jesus. Um, speaking of Canadian cartoonists, uh, Seth's... Um, now, Dustin, unfortunately, you didn't get a chance to read this because your comic store only brought in one copy. It's killing me. It is tearing me apart that I've not been able to read this book yet. Now, let's see if I get this right. The Great Northern Brotherhood of Canadian Cartoonists, a story from the sketchbook of uh, the cartoonist Seth, in quotes there. Um, kind of a follow-up prequel to Wimbledon Green, and I found it um, enjoyably charming. It uh, follows Seth going through a fictional clubhouse for Canadian cartoonists and set telling all sorts of odd stories from their fictional lives. Some of them may be taken from real-life cartoonists. Some folks will know, some folks won't. Uh, one real cartoonist, Doug Wright, gets a fairly hefty reference in there. And from what I understand, that was actually written before the Doug Wright books came out. Do you guys know, remember? Yeah, I'm not sure the, what, what the actual timeline is as far as when this was created. I think in the in the introduction he says this maybe started before Wimbledon Green, mm -hmm. but then he finished it after Wimbledon Green. Um, but yeah, I really enjoyed it. I mean, there's there's not much of a story here, but it's it's just it's just just wonderful world building. It's just describing stuff. Uh, sort of creates the story you know what I, I think what I like about it is the the fact that it's describing an imagined history of cartooning of of how we as cartoonists wish that we were perceived ourselves um, you know it's a, it's it's about how 
uh, it, you know, the, the splendor of the clubhouse that they're in that is um, uh, staffed by Mounties and, um, you know, they've, they've got uh, parades through town every year and the, the, the prime ministers talk about how wonderful the state of Canadian cartooning and, um, and it's the, the classic sort of unreliable narrator where you can never be sure what he's saying is real and and what is um uh you know he, he talks about jimmy fries and doug wright but uh he, he also he goes on um i think he talks about chester brown even a little bit but but then there's numerous other comics that that are just sort of part of this uh imagined history of cartooning that that wishes, yeah <laughs> Jocko the, and cow cook the uh the, the space on you yeah, yeah. Um, I, I don't know it, it I, I I certainly um, felt like I wanted all that to be real um, you know if, if if any of you guys saw his uh, Dominion um, show he has this he's built uh, an entire town of Dominion where this this book takes place he's, he's built like the, the whole city out of um, cardboard in his basement and He's he's been sending his books there. So uh, uh, Wimbledon Green and um, uh, uh, what was the last one? Uh, George Sprott. And I think Clyde Fans too. And Clyde Fans. Um, and and you know when it, uh, they've had this, uh, he, he's shown his uh, his models. He sort of set it up as a city out uh, uh, in in a few galleries um, uh, here in Toronto at the Art Gallery of Ontario and a, a few other spots and wandering through the uh these little streets just sort of made me feel like um i i I, and and you know thinking about this this book uh makes you 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 want you want this history to be real you want there to be um cartoonists to really be prized which you know maybe they were back in uh, the up until the 40s or 50s um you know anyone would read the newspaper strips I think we've fallen on hard times. <laughs> yeah, yeah well, that's, uh, that's kind of... Go, go ahead, ahead John. <laughs> no, no, you go ahead. <laughs> well, I was going to say, in the, I, I wrote a review of this book on, on Drawn, and, and one of the things I said which sort of touches what, what uh, Aaron was saying was that, you know, when I was a kid, I would go to the library and, and, and sort of start discovering a, the history of cartooning and comics, and it was sort of this sort of magical, mysterious... Uh, arcane world that I, you know, that was sort of distant and, and mysterious. Uh, and then as I grew older and actually became a working cartoonist, and and that that magic fades when you sort of enter the working world and the realities of of of, of life. Uh, so one of the things that I really loved about this book was that it sort of brought me back to that that sort of fantasy world of of a make believe cartooning uh, uh, world. You know, I, I was thinking about this the other day. The the um, this thing with uh, cartoonists being lauded and famous and having their pictures taken with presidents and stuff in the in the 40s and 50s. The it's funny that Seth would would um, have that be a big thematic element for him, considering he's like the last cartoonist who shows up for work in a suit and tie. You know, he's like super pro. You see these old pictures of like Chester Gould. And uh, Milk and Niff in there wearing they're wearing like a suit jacket at their drawing board, or at worst their sleeves are rolled up and their ties flipped over their shoulder. Like, 
I mean, I half the time I'm drawing in. I mean, well, I'm undressed, but it's not. It's not <laughs> there was that, that. Um, was that uh, article that Jute here wrote that I think uh, I think it's in that that book of of essays about Chris Ware, in which he talks about uh, Seth and and Chris Ware, uh, um, primarily in uh, in in that how they're. Um, uh, d designing of these comic strip reprint books, um, but I think it, it works. Oh yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, it, about, about their career as a whole, about how they sort of the the work that they're doing sort of um, uh, creates this their own legacy, sort of uh, their their yeah. own their own re rewritten history of cartooning by the work that they're doing. Yeah, and so by by kind of shepherding the the. The historical presentation of their antecedents. They are, yeah, kind of creating a, yeah. I, I, I remember reading that. It was online somewhere too, wasn't it? I think so. Yeah, I think it was on comics. Comics. Yeah, that is where I read it. That was a great. That guy is so smart. Yeah. Yep. I will agree. He's the smartest Another guy in the Canadian. room. Yep. <laughs> They're all ours. Uh, speaking of Canadians and uh, cartoonists, that's mentioned uh, fondly in. Uh, the Great Northern Brotherhood of Canadian Cartoonists uh, is Chester Brown with his um, <coughs> wonderful, uh, very honest and brutal uh, autobiographical book about his uh, relationship with uh, women that work in the sex trade, paying for his it. brutal relationship with them. <laughs> I'm trying to imagine what was brutal about that book. Just brutally honest. I guess it's it's very honest. It's it's uh, some folks. Well, I don't mean it's dishonest. I just mean it's 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 well. Go ahead. <laughs> do you want to do I'm my get... script for me, Dustin? No, no, no. I'm sorry. I'm getting ahead of myself. I have a lot of thoughts about that book, so, and that I haven't quite worked out in my head. So forgive me. Um. It is well. Why don't we jump into it, Dustin? Well, I don't think we've even named in. the book yet. I keep interrupting. Oh. I'm sorry about that. <laughs> Paying for it, a comic strip memoir. Oh, I thought we were talking about Louis Riel. I'm sorry. Riel. <laughs> Louis Riel. Get it right. <laughs> um, Paying for it. Dustin, what did you think? Um, well, I liked it a, a lot. Um, but it, it, it was a... There was a, a thing where I was thinking after I read it, um, and there'd already been a lot of talk about it and so forth because it is just coconuts what the book is about. The um, and I said something about it. And Matt Forsyth was like, "Well, I hope you'll actually review the book and not the Chester Brown, which is what everyone else is doing." Which at the time I was like, "Yeah, that's terrible," because I love Chester Brown. I don't think there's a cartoonist that that I look up to more or lionize more just in in terms of craft and what he's done and so forth. But the like the more I think about that book, the crazy appendices um, and the way it ended are, are really ruinous um, to me for the not ruinous where it, it makes like I'll think about that book probably more than any other he's done for years, but not so much like that was a really great book and more like what a crazy set of ideas that was and the way he he kind of presents them at the end, which to me was uh, distracting from the actual narrative. The, the autobiographical part of it was great, and then having the, the DVD extras at the end um, 
like a director's commentary you have to listen to all at once was really it just was odd to me and it, and it was distracting from the the book most of what i love about his books is what's happening in my brain not not what's happening not what i'm being told you know what i mean mm-hmm. um anyway that's a yeah, yeah that's an interesting book in that. no go, go, go ahead, ahead John. Aaron. <laughs> <laughs> i was just gonna say it's very difficult to uh to separate the the uh the story from the the cartooning like when you're talking about the book it's it's um it's clearly uh I, I don't think there's been a single review that that could separate uh, the content from the form. Right. You mean when you say the content from the form, you mean like are you talking about like how the women are drawn, that sort of thing? Well, no, like what you were saying when when Matt was telling you to uh, not review Chester Brown, but to review paying for it. Right. Yeah. It's uh, the book is him, you know. So it's. Uh, very nakedly so there's a, a, a amazing thing that sammy harkham said on i think after he finished or something he said this on twitter and he's like the real story and paying for it is that last page where he's like and i've been in this this um monogamous relationship with this woman like ever since like for years now he's like that's the story the story isn't that i sleep with prostitutes and i think it should be legal the story is like i've had a committed relationship with a sex worker for the last six or seven or eight years which i was like wow that's amazing like that's true that that's a really I mean, that's what that's what he thinks the story is because then you turn the page and then there's like 80 yeah pages and then it's told the story again exactly like and that that is another thing there's there's not like that moment of silence after a story ends um with paying for it where you where you are digesting because there's right. a lot to digest you sort of turn the page and you're like oh it's not over yet there's uh yeah see i don't need this I didn't even read the notes. I felt like I started reading it and it was just taking away from the previous experience I had. And it was like reading a Steve Ditko comic and I just did not want <laughs> was to it the, um Was it the Spurgeon interview recently where he was saying that, that uh, D&Q tried to talk him out of putting it in, but he persisted? Yeah. Yeah, he said that he, he made it sound like they really passionately tried to convince him not to do it too. I could see why. Um... It really distract. I find it really distracts from the work. It's a it's a strong piece of cartooning. And there's there's particular points I have I have a real challenge with, especially the the presentation or representation of women being faceless. Um, that I really. But I mean, it's also it's Chester's story to tell, and this that kind of exemplifies how this is his experience, not the women's experience you know in terms of the notes though that's just something that he does like he's been doing that for years like they're they're even they're going to be re and the happy clown with copious end notes um like that's just like what he likes you know what's funny though like i um i was almost (laughs) gonna say this but i thought it might be confusing like i love his notes like the notes i bought all those uh the ed the happy clown pamphlets that came out a few years ago mm-hmm. um you know i'm talking about the ones d and q yep, did yeah yep. i bought them too <laughs> i bought them for those notes and the and he had changed a few things i think but i was like oh this is great because that epic clown is amazing um and crazy and and louis real like i bought all, all the underwaters uh i went back and bought all the yummy furs that had the bible stories in them because his notes after the bible stories were almost as good as those gospels themselves but those weren't well. The the gospel ones maybe a little bit, but in general they're not polemics. 
where they're like like that was the end of paying for it was like a political tract almost it was like listen listen brother can i can i talk to you for a second i want to tell you about how we need to decriminalize prostitution it was a, a very strident passionate um and it was a little bit like being proselytized you know if someone came up on the street and said i'm a christian i love god I was like, that's cool. And it, but then if they continue to talk about it after a while, I'd be like, I'm just waiting for the bus, dude. I, I don't know if I need to know this much about you know, your feelings on this particular subject, it, uh, especially at the end of a, a like novel-length you know, story. Could it be the it same was, as, like, say, you just had a big, long conversation about that person's you know, commitment to celibacy, and then they want to talk about their religion, about why they have that commitment to celibacy. And it's like, yeah, I don't want to hear about that part. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah, it's like anything though. It's like after a, a while, it, it's I don't know. Like I don't I don't really care even a little bit about Chester Brown having sex with prostitutes. I thought that that part of the story was interesting, and his everything was amazing about the book, the story, the way he did it. I don't even care about the the way he drew the women, except I hated that he wasn't drawing their faces because he draws amazing faces. It was just like this seems like a missed opportunity, but. Um, the 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 appendix was so noisy though that it just it was it was just distracting it just felt like an extra that that didn't need to be there or something it was like the end of the this is this is a nerdy reference but the the end of Stephen King's The Dark Tower he has this like fake ending at the end that like ties up everything and it's real sweet and he's like now don't read this if you don't want to because it's real pussy but and then he has this like super sweet ending that was awful and it ruined the whole thing retroactively. And that's the kind of reader I am. Stephen King references. Stephen King, Chester Brown. Those are my two lighthouses. <laughs> I thought that that I mean, to me the appendices were um there was just one too many straw man arguments where uh, he would uh, set something up and he'd knock it down and then he wouldn't explore that at all. Um, I, I, I don't have the book in front of me, so I, I can't pull out any specific reference. But I, I, I do recall several instances where he would um, just just lay out a straw man argument, and knock it down, and uh, there would there was I had other issues with the appendices too, uh, to do with um, you know I guess I just got different views with him on. Um, mental health issues uh, and that sort of thing where uh, I mean if you've read uh, My Mom Was a Schizophrenic um, uh, by him I think it was in The, uh, the Little Man and Little Other Man, Stories yeah. um, he, he's got issues to do with uh, and it comes up in, in Louis Riel as well uh, to do with um, mental health as an actual illness and um, when he was talking about uh, the role of addiction in prostitution. He just basically said, "I don't believe it, it, that uh, addiction has anything to do with this, and um, addiction isn't really anything anyway." This one doctor says uh, that it's not a disease, and these people are choosing to be the way that they are, and then leaves it at that. Leaves you hanging. I, that kind of thing. Right. I really, I didn't think was a good. And you're not seeing those discussions being had either. I mean, you're yeah. seeing very specific libertarian discussions of rights, blah, 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 but you're yeah, also yeah. not seeing the, the safety social net and any kind of stuff. Any of the interviews you're seeing, which is you're not you're not talking about that part, you're just talking about the libertarian, the, the, the rights component. Yeah. Um, and like for someone within my own life where I work with folks in that, in 
different communities of different levels of addictions. Um, I, that's one of the challenges I have. Is it really for for women who are sex trade workers, and, and just what the reality is? And you kind of he glosses over that. It's like, oh, that woman's not here anymore. Oh, I wonder what happened. And it just. Yeah, human trafficking? Who knows? He's like, well, I, I don't know, so I'm not going to discuss it because I don't know. Yeah. And in the book, those kind of, I guess, what's the word, elisions are are fine because it's space in the story that you can kind of, you can be like, oh, this, this is a jerky attitude I had for this one woman, or is it, or what does that mean, or is it intended? And there, yeah. there's space for you to kind of come to your own idea about what that character is doing or thinking, but then mm-hmm. when it's laid out, cold like that and you're forced to agree or disagree it puts you as a reader in a position of being like well I disagree with him about this drugs not being a um, not that being a choice therefore you know it's like you're you're in polemical territory so you're no longer thinking in a, in a you're not thinking about art where your mind's kind of open and you're wondering what things mean instead you're you're disagreeing with something you're like well uh, same with his straw man arguments in reverse. Like, well, since Chester Brown thinks this way about that, now I'm thinking about what the author believes or doesn't believe and how that informs the story I just read or doesn't. And the whole yeah. retroactive, it's just, I don't know, I just i just felt like it it hurt a story that I'd, um, this is not Chester Brown's book, but I'd really look forward to that book a lot and was really excited about reading it, was reading the story about a man getting blown repeatedly on the plane coming home from TCAP, it's like trying to hold the book half open so no one would, you know, see this eight eight panels of penises per page. And then it's when I finish those, that it's shit, like, man. what's that? You just gotta own it. Just gotta, yeah, I'm too terrified of flying. I have to deal with one phobia at a time. <laughs> um, so I think that we may have a general agreement that if you're thinking about reading, paying for it, read the book. Don't read the appendices. That no, be... I think you should read it as he presented it. I, I mean, it just—that's part of what he wanted to do as a, as a, as a, um, as a, the creator. Like, I respect that. I just disagree with it. I, I would, I would be incapable of not reading those appendices because Chester Brown is is an amazingly brilliant person who has the most coconuts ideas of uh, of anyone I know that talks about their ideas publicly, which is entertaining. It just hurt that book. I mean, there's also an argument to be made that if, if the, the information in the appendices was uh, vital, it could have been interwoven into the, the comic. Yeah. But I know, yeah. I, know, I know Chester's argument against that is that uh, he wanted the, the story itself, the, the meat of the comic, to be historically accurate. And so throwing in his 2011 opinions with his you know, 2005 self or whenever the story took place uh, you know, wouldn't, wouldn't show. I'm going to move us on to another mo- another book about uh, women in the sex trade uh, from a completely different point of view is uh, book two of the French series Miss Don't Touch Me by Hubert and uh, Care School. Um, how badly did I pronounce those names? Pretty badly. Um, I really like this series. The second book, I really liked up until like the last five pages. Um, what did you guys think? Well, the last five pages, what the the sort of the 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 reveal of don't what was the reveal? reveal? That. Yeah, I don't want to reveal anything. <laughs> yeah, I just well, yeah, you know, you you're know, personally, have to reveal I, something. It's, <laughs> let's let it out. 
No. Hmm. <laughs> it's a tough one to talk about without doing that. But I, I think suffice it to say that the book is a bit of a departure from the first one, which was kind of couched as a, a murder mystery slash sex farce set in a brothel uh, around the turn of the century. And, um, you know, this, this next one finds the protagonist stuck in that brothel and trying to find a way out. Um, I, I found it a bit more bleak, even though it still had the same beautiful art and the same light touch that the first one did. Um, and right up to the end, I found uh, it was very frustrating and a uh, one flew over the cuckoo's nest sort of way. Um, I don't know what, what I can say about this thing. And don't don't spoil one flew over the cuckoo's nest too. <laughs> Which the book or the film? I haven't seen the movie. So. Don't they end the same way? I don't know. I don't know. Uh -oh. Never mind. I, I thought you were trying to say something cutting. But you weren't. <laughs> <laughs> um, Dustin, did you get a chance to read this? Yes, uh, I liked it, although not as much as the first one. But I think that was mainly because the first one, figuring out what it was, was kind of part of the fun. Like, wow, this really is just a book about a woman who is a huge tease in a brothel. Like, it was a very strange book. But it was so fun that it was, um, you kind of overlook any little you know any anything like there's so much story in the second one that in the middle when it was just like getting a little repetitive it wasn't quite as fun to read it wasn't as much hot sex either hot sex puts him in the seats <laughs> john did it put you in the seats uh, i was in the seat no i yeah I, I thought it was great i i found compared to the first one i i i thought the like reading it it was not as evident where the story was going or what the what the main plot was. It's just sort of like, all right, so I'm reading about these people. Uh, I wonder what's going on. Whereas the first book sort of had a def like a, a real definitive, um, uh, like that had that that genre feel. And this seemed like sort of a continuation without uh, without, without the same sort of structure. Of a series of dreams Where nothing Comes up to the top Everything Stays down where it's wounded And comes To a permanent stop wasn't thinking of anything specific Like in a dream where someone wakes up and screams Nothing too very scientific Just thinking of a series of dreams 
take it Have a series of dreams Where the middle And the bottom drop out And you're walking Out of the darkness And into The shadows of doubt Wasn't going To any great trouble You believe in It's whatever it seems Nothing too heavy To burst the bubble Just thinking Of a series of dreams Thinking Of a series of dreams Where the time And the temple drag Suddenly The gate is thrown open And you're left there Holding the bank Wasn't making Any great connection Wasn't falling For any intricate scheme Nothing That would pass inspection As you sneak in Of a series of dreams Dreams where The umbrella is folded Into The path you are heard And the cards are No good that you're holding Unless they're From another world In one The surface was frozen In another I witnessed a cry In one I was running And in another All I see To be doing was climb Wasn't looking For any special assistance Not going Through any great extreme I'd already Gone the distance Just thinking Of a series of dreams
Um, I'm going to move on to another European, uh, Louis or Louis Trondheim's approximate continuum comics um, work that I think was originally collected in Nimrod, uh, a pamphlet series, as one might call it, from uh, Fanographics a number of years ago. And it's in a historically important book as it uh, it's not a bio comic that takes place during the founding of uh, L'Association, uh, the French publisher uh, that really kind of broke a lot of rules of French comics publishing in the 90s. Um, but really it's not about L'Association. It's kind of a background activity while you watch Lewis kind of go through his own problems and his own digressions. Um, I really love it. I love Trondheim's work. He's so easy to read. Um, and I'm happy that there's lots that I still haven't read yet. What did you guys think? This is like one of my favorite <clears throat> autobiocomics, period, I think. It's, um, I don't know if I, I, I don't know, I've read it three or four times now. Like back, like I have the Nimrod comics as well. Um, loved it then. And then uh, I've read it several times since it came out, I guess just under a year ago. But um, I, I like the the idea of this uh, life in transition, and um, his his style is really well suited to this sort of story. Just kind of meandering, he sort of alternates his thoughts about life and cartooning, um, and uh, with with, with uh, amusing anecdotes and flashbacks um, in a way that I just find I find super appealing. And his art. I don't know if I I know that this this kind of um, anthropomorphic funny animal stuff isn't for everybody, but for me, it, it, his stuff this it really works well. Yeah, I agree. I, I I really like the way he sort of weaved in and out of fantasy. <clears throat> and I had I hadn't read this before uh, before it came out uh, this year. And just to say a side comment um his work that he had in mom was probably my favorite stuff that i read in mom where he was kind of dealing with getting old and being a cartoonist and it's interesting seeing this as a young fellow um kind of committing to comics uh, and i wonder how that resonated with you guys as far as that point of view of like how he really this is him dealing with okay i'm going to be a cartoonist this is how it goes yeah, that one uh, in Moam, it felt like it was the sequel to this piece. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. To me, though, I didn't. Um, it didn't engage with me in the same way. Uh, that one seemed like it was almost like it was a list of famous cartoonists in France that he would chat with, and um, I, I don't know. It just wasn't. Um, to me, it didn't have. Maybe, maybe it's because I'm not at the same point in my career as he is. Like. When, when the approximate continuum comics takes place when he's sort of starting out, starting a new yeah. family. Well, moving. that's what I'm meaning is hearing what you guys think of that specific <coughs> approximate with how. Yeah, I mean, th that resonates with me really well. But the the, the mom stuff was, uh, you know, I can't I can't quite relate to it. I guess. You know, I would um, not to disagree necessarily with Aaron, who I would never never disagree <laughs> with Aaron, but the I the I read these sort of when the Nimrod was coming out, but I remember um, like just waiting. I When I went through my pamphlets recently, I had all those Nimrods, and I never read the second half of them because the, 
the story was a little flighty. I remember reading it originally, so I was just like, I'll just wait till this is all out and I can read it together. And having read that Moam story, which I loved, um, and more importantly, the um, Little Nothings series that MBM has been doing, the this story in in comparison to those, I mean, it's way earlier than the than the MBM blogs, suffers in terms of his. Um, it doesn't have a lot of clarity. Like it, he's so much better now <coughs> at getting a point across, and his his kind of Louis Trondheim character is is so well drawn now. Like you have a real clear sense of that character. That the ones, the um, I don't know this this book. I did not enjoy as much as I to. Um, well, yeah, that's uh, sort of what I found interesting about it. Is at, at first glance, it's it's obviously. Uh, Tron time, the the style. If you, if you don't uh, scrutinize it too much, looks not that uh, different from what you see now in, in the Little Nothings books. But um, once you read it, you realize that although his style is similar now, it's so much more refined. And and yeah, you know um, what looks maybe dashed off um, is actually you know remarkably. Competent, competent, and and, and um, detailed compared to this book. You know what's interesting though is that um, not that long ago I read that Bourbon Island um, book that he he mm -hmm. put out that's, that someone else wrote and he illustrated it. Um, and I know just I what you're going to say. It was a mess. Like I couldn't I couldn't visually read it. Like oh, looking yeah, pretty at rough, it, right? Noisy. But, yeah, uh, uh, there Visually was no. Noisy definition of the characters where whereas this one is uh it's it's black and white like that one but um he's working appropriately it's not just it's not that noisy um and i think maybe maybe now he's just used to working in color i don't know um but uh but this one worked for me as a, a black and white comic better than that bourbon island well did. that bourbon island was i mean that came out in english what like four three four years ago now yeah, yeah, not even that so long. In French, it was probably five or six years ago. I'm guessing. Probably yeah. longer. And there's still a gap between. Yeah, you know, I I don't know. I can't remember exactly when approximate continuum the, 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 the the polish and so forth. It, it might be just a little bit after approximate continuum. Yeah, the book here says uh, 1993 to 1994. Oh well, then shut my mouth. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about a more um, experienced at that point uh, French cartoonist, one of my favorite, and I am very excited with each new book that is translated and published over here. Um, like a sniper lining up his shot, uh, Jacques Tardy, um, another one of his uh, collaborations with Jean-Claude Forest. Um, wonderful crime noir, kind of kicks everyone else doing crime noir in the ass, I feel. Um, how do you guys feel? I hadn't read uh, any Tardy before, so this was my first, uh, oh, first wow. introduction to his work, and uh, yeah, I quite enjoyed it. It was like, uh, yeah, like uh, reading a like a, a Jason Bourne story or something. <laughs> Grittier though, it's just like nasty people doing nasty things to each other. Like everyone's got squinty eyes. Yeah, and the ladies. Yeah, no one, no one ever looks surprised at all. They're always just like, yeah, they're just they're steely eyed. They're just yeah. yeah. Even when you're getting your ear ripped off by another dude in a car, you just got that steely look. <laughs> it, 
uh, this, I mean, I really like his black and white stuff. Uh, I find it um, really impressive. Uh, the, the, the color, um, like his adult blank sec, uh, those sort of flightier ones don't really appeal to me, but this, uh, all of his sort of, uh, his hard boiled stories really, I find they're, they're like more hard boiled than anything. I love them. Which is funny because he's yeah, working what... with someone else on them. <clears throat> Yeah, but the yeah. Now, stuff is he is working with someone else, or is he adapting existing think... novels? Yeah, he's adapting existing novels. And, and is that guy still around, or is he no, dead? He's dead. Okay. The, that I, one I, might I was have not been... real clear on that myself. Are you sure that one wasn't just that one specifically written? Actually, I'm not he sure. Says about adapted. That. He he credits it. Yeah, I think the credit is adapted. Yeah, okay. it says adapted by Jacques Tardy from the novel by Jean Patrick Manchette. Oh, it's mentioned. Okay, I said Forrest earlier. Let's see, Forrest is the guy that did the um... Barbarella. Did he not do another Tardy book though? Yeah, he yeah. Did. What was the Tardy book the, he did? One with the guy on the walls. He see me. Yeah, yeah. You're That's there. what I was gonna say. That one, like I enjoyed that one. That was um, you are here, right? Yeah. Um, and then I haven't read West Coast Blues yet. Ah, but... that's his best one. I think that's the that's the best one. I heard a lot of good stuff about it. Um, the only tardy I'd re read was that Bloody Streets of Paris that I think iBooks translated a few years ago, like maybe mm -hmm. five or six years ago, which is amazing if you can find it. It is so good. It's um it's a World War II era um, again adapted from someone else's um, something. But um, you are here was kind of high concept, and then the um, the one set in World War Two. What was it? Oh gosh, damn it! Robin, help me out. The Do you one mean the that... War of the Trenches? The one that's in World War One. War of the Trenches. Yeah, that one killed me. Like I, I was just like, I'm not going to read anything else by this guy for a while. I can't handle it because it was so, it was so wordy. It was kind of overwritten and then extraordinarily dark. It was just like this is too much to wade through, even for this gorgeous art. This book was so crisp and nice, and surprisingly not overly wordy which normally when people adapt novels they're like oh we got to keep all these words and it's just endless captions funny you say that because so, my my initial reaction when i when i started reading it was like sure there's a lot of text describing what the picture is showing um which i, I at first i thought was but then and then and then i sort of you said that start, was your initial reaction or did, yeah was that your my continuing reaction. reaction as well uh, no 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 when, when the more i started reading i sort of I realized that that's sort of the that added to the noir quality, sort of the that narration element. And there was a disconnect too, though. Like he would do things where he would describe. Uh, it was really interesting. That sometimes where he would describe things that were in the frame, and other times where he would refer to things that weren't in the frame. Right. He would sort he of just, describe like this happened between now and the, the previous. This frame. happened, yeah. And then he's just driving. He's just like right. in a car or he's shaving or something. And it was very interesting to see those choices. Um, that were I don't, it, I don't know if they're amazing choices but they showed that there was some that there was some care given to those decisions rather than I think I, I uh, that was so those sort of decisions is what made me come around to all the text because yeah. as a reader it gave me it, it gave me an active role where I could imagine those bits that were left out right right yeah like it wasn't like the prose was so extraordinary that you it wasn't like um it's very Every straightforward. It's, it's quite um, it's quite economic. Yeah. 
Could also be him just wanting to draw what he wants to draw. It's like, yeah, it's I, 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 I want to draw this part of the book. This is going to be awesome. Um, I'm going to bring up another Fantagraphics uh, project this year. Is uh, They've started uh, publishing some work, some classical Disney work, um, specifically Carl Barks's uh, collection. The Lost in the Andes and the Floyd Gottfriedson Mickey Mouse books, of which there are two out so far. Um, the first one <coughs> being Race to Death Valley, and the second one being uh, Treasure Island. Um, now there was some uh, in the emails back and forth. There's some differing views on those books. Um, some contrasting viewpoints. What did you guys think of of those books? Um, were they your first time reading either of those creators, or I had read some Carl Barks before, but I hadn't read any of any of these, and and it's uh, and I hadn't I hadn't read any of the uh, uh, Floyd Gottfried and Mickey Mouse until until this book came out. Yeah, personally, I um, I I think that like my among my first comic book reading experiences were um, going to uh, a cabin that. Um, my parents' friends had, and they had a chest full of Lone Ranger and Carl Barks comics, and um, didn't really care much for the Lone Ranger stuff, but the the Donald Duck and Uncle Scrooge comics really turned my crank, um, and and I think that is one of the things that really got me into um, reading comics. So I have very fond memories of that. And uh, as for the Floyd Gottfriedson stuff, um, this was. Basically new. I'd read some of the stuff that um, Disney has reprinted in, um, you know, some of their newer comics, sort of anthologies of um, most comics and, and, and stuff uh, that, that you can just get cheap anywhere for fifty cents. Um, but uh, I, I think reading these nineteen uh, twenties and thirties uh, Mickey Mouse strips was um, kind of a, a revelation in terms of, um, you know, what, what else was happening at that time. Now, a big part of the, these projects, the Mickey Mouse ones especially, is the archival work. They're going to it to kind of give you a context of the time and the place. Um, how do you guys feel about that kind of level of involvement within? Do you find it distracting, just a little too academic, kind of taking away from being the comics itself, or did it improve what you're reading? Are you talking about like the essay materials or like the, the retouching of the images? The essay materials. I know in the in the Mickey Mouse ones, and I might be different from the other guys because I did not really like those books very much. The I found that archival stuff really um, almost suspect. Where there was there was one guy from Disney that it was kind of he kept writing these things that were like well, back when I had dinner with this one dude or with Walt's uh, brother or nephew or someone. They're always like kind of Disney stories that didn't have a lot to do with. It was more about the guy. It was one of these things where um, where you'll see someone review a book and then they'll talk endlessly about um, <coughs> how they discovered the book, kind of like what I'm doing right this second. But like uh, I'm not a trained uh, academic. The the um, it was just a bunch of stuff about him and not really anything about the things itself. It was like what I get out of Mickey Mouse and what I get out of these strips is this and that. And they seemed. Um, they put me in a really bad mood, and then I read the comics, and I didn't 
care for the comics either. And uh, it was a it was a very frustrating experience reading that book. I ended up uh, uh, trading it back into the store um, to get something else because it just it just left me. Um, I don't know. It, it, I, w- I had kind of the opposite um, reaction than, than Aaron did, where I was really looking forward to those. I'd heard they were really seminal, and they obviously were amazing. But sometimes things are like um, they have that Citizen Kane um, syndrome, where they're uh, amazing and and kind of uh, genre or or even art form defining in their at their inception, and then 80 years later they're kind of um, you know, Citizen Kane is a really loud movie with a lot of crazy music and nutty camera angles, but it, all those things have been done so much now that you don't notice as much how innovative it was at the time. Um, and that weird kind of any art style that all those characters are composed in is, is I don't know if it's offensive, but it's mildly off-putting. Kind of jarring, um, yeah. Yeah, it's just like... Um, it's one of those things where you're like uh, reading the Karl Barks book. I was just kind of waiting, like every time they go to Africa, I was like, "Oh God, here we go." And then um, that stuff always. Um, I'm not real good with that. Like some some people are better than I am at being able to disassociate or or place within a historical context. But it always pulls me out of what it really is essentially kids' material. You know, you you don't read like a a Richard Scarry book and and. Um, expect to see like uh, some really gross um, imperialistic uh, depictions of somebody. It's just a weird. I don't know that that kind of stuff. The visual um, symbols is always um, hard for me to handle in books. I kind of rambled there. That's bring it back. Bring it back, John. <laughs> uh, well, I did notice that in the I didn't read any of the uh, essay materials in the in the Mickey Mouse book, but uh, the the additional. Um, sort of story by story notes for the Donald Duck book. Uh, yeah, they they touch on the on sort of the racial stereotypes and and in each case they they say like yeah this is horrible but uh, like Karl Barks uh, was um, probably more sympathetic than most people at the time which is why although this guy's got a bone in his nose and the, you know he's he's seen as sympathetic so it's sort of this sort of apologetic. Um, yeah, I noticed material. that too. It was a really odd choice. I was like, "Why even?" It was, you don't have to don't sugarcoat know. it. Like we know it's terrible. Yeah, yeah. The, the, it's it's much documented that everything was shitty between 1600 and 1970 or so. But <laughs> uh, some it people was, may it, say it goes later. <laughs> it was a very yeah. Spoiler alert: everything before 1970 was terrible. Everything after 1970 is amazing, so good. <laughs> but the the um, the apology, I don't know that I don't that book that Karl Barks book also was weird to me, and I really was excited about um, that book. And um, that book, I don't know, I was a little disappointed in in I guess when it finally came out. In I that, think everyone's I expectations had, were so high for it, though. I mean, Karl Barks. I love. Those duck stories, I'm like you, Aaron, where I, all the comics I got when I was a kid were like Attic Sale comics. They were, it was a real hodgepodge. You never had two issues in a row. So none of the superhero things was I really very knowledgeable about. But the Carl Box stories didn't matter. Like you could get four or five Uncle Scrooge stories, and it wasn't like they were picking up or anything. Um, I still have all my old ones, and they're read to death, like they're um, pages missing or covers falling apart. And 
I had a really interesting, I'm sorry to talk so much about this, but this is the one of these books that I have the most opinions about. The, um, I had a really interesting talk with Kevin Heisinger at uh, Mix in Minneapolis this year where we were arguing about the Popeye books, which Fanographics also did, in terms of whether or not they were really amazingly designed. I was arguing that they were because they're so nice as books. Um, and, you know, you, you, if you, you've got a whole week of dailies on a page and so forth, and it was really interesting, their, their newspaper size, blah, 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 blah. And he made a really good point, which was that he's like, that's great and everything. Those are great if you're a book snob, but if you want to look at the art, or if you're a kid that's reading Popeye for the first time, um, you don't want to see the strips at the size, the tiny size they originally appeared in the newspaper. You want to be able to see the art and so forth. And um, which I still think that the Popeye books are gorgeous and amazing. But um, that was a really interesting point in terms of book design, in terms of uh, what audience you're shooting for. And these Karl Barks uh, books were really beautifully designed. They're sturdy. They're, you could be like, wow, I could buy this for my nephew. This could be a, a, a call box book that I give to a new generation of you know, comics readers. Um, but then inside, um, you know, the, the color is nice and everything. Rich Massa did an amazing job recoloring. The color almost elevates it a little bit, though, where it's like suddenly stuff like the, the kind of gross ethnic caricatures is worse because it's got a modern color palette and it's like wow someone really worked hard to make these look good is um, it a modern color palette then, or they just or did they did they just reproduce the original coloring from scratch no they they definitely dialed the colors he he talked um i think even either in the notes or in an interview was it with uh they're spurgeon old. Old. they're bold but they are mod they are not old um, that's not an old comics palette. Like the yellows, it is a is a much richer, creamy yellow. You'll see if you go back and look at them, you'll see that that rich has definitely replaced colors with more pleasant colors, rather than the gross, bold. You know, it'd be like 100% yellow or these weird ass purples for stuff. I did want to say one uh, thing about the, the 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 coloring of the book, which for the most part I I, I quite like, because um, they must have had access to the original black and white line art, right? There's, um, you know, there's an interview with Rich somewhere that he talks in depth about his process on those, like, and very openly about what he had access to, where he had to tow a certain line, where he was given freedom. Um, it might have been a Spurgeon interview with Rich, like maybe six months ago or so. Well, the one thing but... I wanted to say was that as <laughs> as much as I uh, like the coloring, uh, one thing really bothers me, and that it's anywhere where there's snow or or something that's white that has like a light blue shading. It just it just screams of, of a Photoshop brush trying to replicate an old look. Like you can oh, see yeah. that sort of that unwavering line weight that uh, yeah. of a Photoshop brush, and it just yeah. brings Rounded me right out, brings me right out every time I see it. And it's on so yeah. many pages. That, I think an that issue a, that I had with that book was also the, um, the the way that it was laid out from longest story to shortest story. Yeah, uh, it, it seemed almost yeah, was, like there was diminishing returns. You know, you read these like I don't know three or four long stories, and then a bunch of medium length stories, and a bunch of gag panels. And I would rather see it sort of interspersed in between, so you don't really know what you're getting. Like, every time. like an intermission. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. I would rather they did a, a thing like like what you're saying, but present them as they originally were in the in the issues in that order where it was. You know what I mean? It'd be like a one page, one or two pager breaking up the longer stories. <clears throat> mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Rather, 
grouped in that weird way. Because the reason, the the weird way they put this volume out with these stories, which aren't the first ones, um, which I guess I I originally assumed they were, they wanted to start the line on a really good note, you know, and get it out there and make it popular, which is great. Like whatever makes more of these books happen, I'm in favor of. But then to put like those weird stories with the voodoo dude and the the with the kind of weird racial things in there, I was like, who's who's is the audience for these books anyway? Is it like is it libraries? Is it young readers? Is it art snobs? Is it strip snobs? Like, it was really confusing um, to me. And the, I mean, the, the book looks amazing and looks great, but there were a lot of strange choices that made me wonder um, how many, maybe how many cooks were involved in that broth. Well, as long as you have a uh, structure like Disney involved in it, there's probably a lot. Um, well. Uh, I I certainly preferred the format to um, uh, the 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 layout of the, the ordering of the stories, notwithstanding. But I, I I preferred that that particular type of hardcover to the John Stanley Library that DNQ is putting out, which just seems a little bit overly precious to hand off to your kid uh, and say here's a here's a book, but with gold leaf on it, and it's going to mm -hmm. get all scraped and bunged up. This one seems a little hardier and a bit more no-nonsense, like the content. Hear that, kids? You can toss this one around. Um, let's bring us over to another kid's comic we have on our list, is uh, Johnny Ryan's Prison Pit, book three. <laughs> <laughs> well played. <laughs> Segways of magic. Um, speaking for, the of... for the children of Charles Manson. <laughs> <laughs> well, we You'd be surprised what we have here in our uh, Canadian broadcasting channel there, Dustin. We, uh, we watch some pretty uh, out there stuff. Um, Prison Put Book 3, uh, Johnny Ryan's latest epic of his very uh, um, violent, um, wonderful world of uh, cannibal fuckface <clears throat> and more. Um, did all of you get a chance to read this one? I can't remember. Can we yeah. say, instead yeah. of, of what you just said, can we say... Um, like C ball F face. Is that okay? <laughs> Why? I'm just kidding, Robin. I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, but C ball, seriously, if you could just say C ball, that would make me feel great. C ball sounds like something else. Does it? Hmm. Yeah. Um, what did you think of Prison Pit there, uh, Dustin? Tell me. Wait, Tell I just did all that talking about callbacks. Ask someone else first. I've over talked. I need Aaron. to save up more talk. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I don't even think that Seaball was in this one, or or maybe just for like two pages at the end. I think wasn't this. They all kind of blur together in my head, but I seem to think this one was just one long grotesque fight scene with Seaball's nemesis, and um, I think he came out of someone's penis at some point, and. <laughs> It's just like you're describing a nightmare, and, and then he came out of penis, but it wasn't like the real penis. It was like high school penis. It was a different penis. <laughs> That's what it felt like, but a hilarious, awesome nightmare. Um, I really enjoyed it. Like, I can't believe that. That I mean, I, I must have read that whole book in under ten minutes. Um, it's just sort of what two, three panels per page, and just non-stop grotesque fighting and and 
I feel like Johnny Ryan's um, sort of upped his game here, like uh, in terms of describing action. And I think that it's a pretty amazing book. He's sort of yeah, taking his sort of gross out gags to the, the next level by adding sort of this um, yeah, sci-fi action pulp movie um, background to it all. Yeah, it's like the the it the structure of it, like having a genre structure to put that that um, his aesthetic aesthetic into, it really charges it up in a weird way. That uh, where and it kind of, for me, it kind of opened me up to all his comics, which um, for years were too much. Like I was just like, mm mm. Uh, <laughs> I remember getting that um, when I used to order for Heroes, getting from Buena Ventura the. Um, Oh, whichever one was the the cream colored hardcover that Alvin did, um, but it was like the really gross, you know, gag stuff. <coughs> and uh, I was flipping through it, and suddenly, like, my face was hot. I was like, "Oh my god, I can't believe I ordered this for the store. I'm gonna have to put this behind." You know, I was like really terrified that I was gonna be the next CBLDF case <laughs> after looking at that. But it. Uh, I don't know. Since since these books have come out, now I'm going back and getting all his stuff, and it's. I mean, he's a really good cartoonist. Like he just is is a really good nuts and bolts cartoonist, which mm-hmm. I think gets overlooked a lot because he's so gross. Well, probably like, similar with uh, uh, Ivan Brunetti. You can sort of get past. Oh yeah, that, yeah, like, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> with that whole like, this this is a really uh, technically strong scat drawing that he's done. Yeah. <laughs> No one else can do a pile of shit quite like Johnny Ryan. Yeah. Sorry if the the cuss there offended you. But there's um, something there's something about how it's it's sort of juvenile, that that um, um, makes it less offensive because it's clearly like it's yeah. it's you know the the psyche of a twelve year old boy, uh, on the page. Yeah, it's like a comic you would carve into your trapper keeper. Right, like no one's. You wouldn't look look at this and 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 see a disturbed mind so much as oh, this is a guy who, you know, he's still a bit of a teenager at heart. See, that's the opposite of what bothered me about the the um, ethnic thing in the Karl Box book. Because when you recolor that material and gussy it up for a new generation, then you're recontextualizing that offensive material. It's not you're not you're presenting it out of historical context. So it adds an extra level of we still think this is okay, right? Rather packaging than it, packaging like, well, it as a as a kid friendly book. Yeah, like the um, if you read Tintin in the Congo, um, it's terrible. But if you read Tintin in the Congo and it was all recolored like those other ones, like the fifties Tintins, it would be a thousand times worse because it would be it's not the rough old, you know, shitty Tintin. It's a new <coughs> sex package Tintin for a new audience. Like it, it's bringing it forward a generation um, is one thing, but but putting it in that generation's vernacular, I, th- I think, really is just saying the same old gross thing again. I think. So, point being that you're right. Yeah, the, the fact that it's so juvenile um, makes it better, uh, not worse. Right. Sorry to break um, in, but I had more to say about Karl Barks. <laughs> <laughs> Well, well, we'll keep that in mind for a special of uh, Dustin's thoughts on Carl Barks' show. Um, you can't stop thinking about racism. Yeah. 
I'm going to move us over to a couple of books which kind of, uh, they're very similar in a way in that they're exploring these grander ideas and using um, a lot of analogy of different types of biblical, classical <coughs> mythology. Um, the first being uh, Big Questions by Anders Nilsson, um, the thickest book of the year, um, if not the biggest. I think it had may have had more pages than um, than Habibi. Like yeah, I think it's a bit bigger. I think it's a little bigger. Uh, good for you, Anders. You're a little bigger than uh, Habibi. Uh, I I really love Anders' book. Uh, I think I discussed this one on the last show um, with the critics. Uh, it's it's fabulous. He weaves in all these different things, these different ideas, and um, it's really wonderful. I think uh, Jog made a good mention of it being like you really see as the growth of a cartoonist, um, the development of a cartoonist. Especially mm -hmm. mm -hmm. from those the, the first uh, sort of crudely drawn birds to these like magnificent landscapes. Now this was originally published in a series uh, called Big Questions, which I think made up to what issue fifteen. Does that sound right? That's Dustin, about right. Why has it got to be me? I just think because you didn't actually. Just because he's an American, you issues. think I know everything about him? Is that it? <laughs> uh, well, if we can talk about the war in there, and I think you'll have more to talk about the war stuff, because mm -hmm. uh, you guys like violence, right? Um, yeah, we love violence. Love violence. Yippee motherfucker! There we go. <laughs> <laughs> um, so let's hear your thoughts on Anders' book. Big questions. Uh, for me, that is probably the single biggest influence on my own comics. Um, uh, this is, uh, to me, just, it's one of my favorite comics, um, period. Uh, I, I love the fact, I love how it's been sort of slowly unfolding and evolving over the last, I mean, I don't even know when I started reading this, like 10, 10 years ago? long time ago um, and I think this was actually the first alternative comics pamphlet that I ever picked up um, and uh, I, I think I, I I don't know maybe I'm just too attached to it to really uh, to, to say anything critical about it but uh, the, the idea of these, these birds is sort of a cipher that um, he can project all of his Questions uh, onto um, about existence and um, uh, life. Uh, it, it, it really appealed to me. Aaron, or was hmm? that was that, that was <laughs> that was me and that that was Dustin Harvest. I had all those smart ideas. Um, yeah, I, I I had only read a few of the um, of the pamphlet versions, um, and you know without any of the grander context of having read all of them so um, I really appreciated uh, getting a chance to, to read it all in its entirety um, yeah I mean I think Aaron put it put it perfectly um, yeah it was just a, just a really fun readable um, book I was surprised at how how quickly it it read I'm sure much to the dismay of, of Anders because uh, I, I can't imagine it, it it took a short time to draw 15 years now. Dustin? Uh, 
Um, I actually haven't read the large book yet. Um, I've read up to, I don't know, 10 or 11 of the pamphlet and then started saving them up to read it once. So I haven't gotten to the end of the whole thing yet. He keeps selling out. He sold out at SPX and he sold out at Mix um, right before I showed up to uh, to buy them. So soon to, I have it now, but I just haven't read it yet. Oh, but yeah, it's it's amazing. It's brilliant. Yeah, that guy's next level. What do you guys there's think of no, the? There's no unfortunate ethnic uh, depictions that I can remember in any part of the book. So. <laughs> what do you guys think of the the way he puts forward ideas? Um, the the discussion of ideas. Was there anything in there that kind of resonated that you'd like to to bring into your own work, um, or is it kind of just interesting to see how someone else is doing this? Uh, for me, I. Um... I really like, um, I guess, any media, movies or, or uh, books or whatever that have um, uh, just long discussions, kind of boring, of people just discuss discussing things, uh, discussing ideas, um, and 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 to me, like a movie like uh, uh, Jim Jarmusch's uh, Dead Man or uh, Stalker by Tarkovsky, uh, both fall into the same camp is uh, Big Questions, um, which is uh, just kind of a, a rambling journey of ideas. Um, and uh, I, I think I like that so much that I kind of pilfered that that method of uh, delivering uh, ideas from my own comics. Yeah, I, I quite liked, um, like as Aaron was saying, how he, he could um, discuss things through the through the eyes of the birds uh, as a way to sort of look at something abstractly from an outsider's perspective. Similar to, is it, the, is it um, uh, what's the Vonnegut novel that's told uh, as like a letter to aliens? Uh, is it Cat's Cradle? Uh, the one that has the- Or like, is it Breakfast of Champions? Breakfast of- Is no. that the one that's like in an asshole looks like this and it's right, an Right, 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 yeah. yeah. That's Breakfast of Champions. Yeah, sort of, that, that's, it reminded me of that, uh, that Vonnegut book. Sort of like here's some, some you know, human ideas and concepts through the eyes of, of an outsider. How how would you describe it face value, rather than having the knowledge of what it actually is? Like the the airplane, is it a, is it a big bird? Is it an egg? What is it? Mm -hmm. um, well said, John. Well said. Well, hey, you're, you're a smart man, John. <laughs> Smarter than the rest of us. The forming by Jesse Moynihan. Um, it's funny. Both of them kind of they feel like they're kind of treading in similar territory in a completely different way. And I'm curious. I know Dustin didn't get a chance to read this. Um, um, that is that is um, that is uh, a hot single going up the charts here. On my, once I finish Habibi, that's next. Um, John, I'll, I'll keep everyone. I'll keep all of your listeners apprised of my reading list. There we go. John and Aaron, um, did you kind of get the same thing that I did out of it? Did you kind of see that similarity? See, <coughs> oh, similar yeah, I, absolutely. They're, they're... Hello? Go Sorry. ahead, Aaron. Go on. Uh, uh, yeah, I, I found them super similar uh, in a lot of ways. Um, I think, uh, you know, farming is obviously quite different aesthetically um, you know a bit more of a 
Fort Thunder type um, uh, look about it and combined with a, um, a sense of language that's uh, similar to uh, big questions in that it's kind of got a modern sensibility to it um, but it's a lot funnier um, kind of reminds me of uh, Kate Beaton's work in a way the uh, this um, juxtaposition of uh, uh, gods and um, aliens and, and humans talking in sort of valley speak or uh, I don't know what you'd call it but just kind of uh, the I mean, modern big questions anyway. is funny too uh, but this is certainly more irreverent yeah it yeah. Doesn't, doesn't doesn't treat its subject matter with with the same sort of um, seriousness yeah uh, you kind of get a joke a panel basically I mean it's it seems to be um, more it's almost like a, a vehicle for telling jokes but it's it's also a great story at the same time and it's beautiful and it's beautiful it's a, it's a... <laughs> um, like I, I had read the like maybe the first half of this online uh, and it's so much different reading it this size because on screen it's I mean it looks nice but um, I mean, this must be, it, the book itself must be printed the size it's drawn at, I think. Probably, yeah. It's a it's a big book. Um, and it, it, it's, I've been having a hard time with the no-brow stuff, just as a, as a side thing, because a lot of, it's a lot of really expensive books that don't really have much to it. Like, they're good books, but they're really short, and they're like $20. Um, and this one well, that's, that's a, more a function of the uh, exchange rate though right and no. in, importing nope they're expensive books they're not yeah. oh, okay. I just the uh, shipping them across the ocean that was making them cost so much no they're expensive books I think that sort of adds to it for sure like if you bought them in the UK the like how much they're in the pounds it's pretty pricey um, but then again you know I would spend uh, any amount of money to get another John McNaught book. I just I can I know that they're only like thirty pages long, but uh, I love them. They're uh, all of their stuff. I, it's it is hard to justify spending that much money on um, uh, a, a book like that. But a lot of them I find are worth it. Yeah, my opinion. They're doing a thing where this, um, at shows recently, Chris Pitzer from Ad House Books. Um, Subdistributes for them. Uh, I think he still does. He, I think he still has them at shows as well, or their stuff. And so I'll be over there chatting with them. And I don't have any money, but at a show, you might have a little more disposable cash. And I'll be building while we're talking. I'll stack. Like, oh my god, this is amazing too. Oh my god, this is amazing. Oh god, I like the John McNaught stuff. And then he'll total it up and then be like, okay, that's one hundred and twenty dollars. Be like, what? What? Not that beautiful. Um, it's really hard to um, to put those books back though. To be like, which one of these gorgeous, impeccably printed books do I not want? Yeah, you know I, what I'm I mean? there in those the McNaught books. I'll yeah, gladly pay. I've I got all the those were the ones that I actually kept um, the last time, and I think there's there's Birchfield Close and maybe two others, one or two others, like a pamphlet and something just else. Two Birchfield Close and uh, Pebble Island. Pebble Island, yeah. I have those. I haven't read them yet. They look like um, 
they look kind of like treats you know like that short little things to to appreciate yeah definitely they're definitely books that you can stare at just like stare at each image um for a long time Look at that! We're straying off our uh, prescribed <laughs> list our here. List. Of, uh, We're talking about that books. a couple of times. Best books of the year. Well, and well, that's you know those uh, are very good books. Um, well, actually, I haven't read the McNaught stuff yet, but they're sitting on my shelf waiting to be read. Um, my to be read piles scary. It makes me cry at night. Um, we've been talking for almost two hours, fellows. I think I'm going to bring us to a close. Uh, thank you so much for taking the time with me out of your busy schedules and uh, doing whatever it is you would do. Thank you, Robin. Yeah, thanks a lot. This was fun.